You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Today's teaching text comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through 24. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak words, whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Robbie. Good morning, church. It is so nice to see all of you. It's so good to be sharing with you. It has been a while. (laughs) Uh, The last time I taught was at the very beginning of this teaching series back in early July, and that wasn't even in person because I was in Ireland uh, with my family for um, about two months. We had a wonderful time. Thank you for asking. Um, And actually, I've come back carrying a little extra cargo, guys. Uh, Our family is expanding in 2022. With twins, guys. So we are going. (laughs) We are going to become a family of six, which is wild and wonderful. We're very excited. Such a gift. But yes, you're going to increasingly see me becoming bigger and probably slower as the weeks go on. So just some context if I need to sit down or have a snack. Who knows? In a few months, I might have to call halftime for bathroom breaks. I don't know. But I am certainly glad to be sharing with you today. Um, Today, I am tasked with bringing this current teaching series to a close. So from early July, we've been uh, digging into Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 17, and really honing in on that passage about the armor of God. And we've had a whole host of wonderful voices teaching us, giving us their insights into what it means for us to be people who clothe ourselves in the armor of God in order to stand firm in the spiritual battle that we are all in. And if you've been tracking with us every week, you know, you can probably say those seven verses in your sleep. Um, And today, I'm actually not going to spend much time unpacking or summarizing verses 10 to 17, where we have primarily been, because I want to draw out something else um, related to this passage from the very end of the chapter that connects specifically with the repeated call to stand firm. So when we look at any passage of scripture, it's always really important, right, to know what happens right before and right after. And you'll probably know by now that the book of Ephesians comes to us in the form of a letter. Um, It is written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. 
And you know, sometimes in the New Testament, when we read letters that Paul has written to other churches, they can read, um, at least in part, as somewhat of a reprimand. He's writing to correct um, incorrect um, doctrine or behavior. Um, But this letter, in its entirety to the Ephesians, is pretty congratulatory. He is affirming the church of Ephesus. He's commending the church community for their love and their faith. He tells them, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. And after Paul sets the scene with lots of blessing and thanksgiving, the rest of the letter is really an appeal for them to continue to live countercultural lives according to the way of Jesus. And part of what is involved is for them to continue to be mindful of the spiritual realities at work in the world and internally within them, and to make use of all of the heavenly resources given to them by God in order to stand firm. So this call to stand firm is really a call to perseverance, to endurance, to long-suffering even for the sake of the kingdom. It's what Eugene Peterson referred to as long obedience in the same direction. So how do we do that? How do we continue to stand firm day after day when we're being pummeled on every side from the battles without and the battles within? What enables us to stand our ground? Well, right after Paul has finished describing what these heavenly resources are in the form of pieces of armor, we come to the text that Robbie just read for us, where Paul appeals to them to pray, to be alert, to continually pray for God's people, the church, including Paul himself, that he may live worthy of the calling that he has been given by God, and of course, this call to love. And as in all of Paul's letters, we have some words in the form of final greetings where Paul will acknowledge a particular individual or a group of people. And then he writes words that read like a kind of benediction. He says, peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. And this undying love is is really what I wanna talk about today. Now, the word love here is the Greek word agape. Now, in English, we have this one word, love, which can mean a whole host of different things. I can love my spouse. I can love New York City. I can love watching Ted Lasso. And yet this one word doesn't truly express the variation of feeling that I may have for each of those loves. And in the ancient Greek, there were several different words for love. Eros um, describes a passionate emotion, a sensual, even sexual love. Philia describes a brotherly love or affection, a fondness. Um, Storge is the love that might exist within a family. And agape is an unconditional love, a self-sacrificing love. And it's this final word for love that is being used throughout this passage. Interestingly, when Jesus rose from the dead uh, and was reinstating Peter, who had denied him three times, you may know that three times he asked Peter, do you love me? And it's really interesting if you look at the interplay between the Greek words in that piece of dialogue, because Jesus begins by asking Peter, do you love me, agape? Do you love me with a divine, self-sacrificial love? And Peter responds by saying, Lord, I love you, Philia. I love you with a brotherly love, an affection, a fondness. And the second time, 
Jesus says again, Peter, do you love me, Agape? And Peter says, Lord, I love you, Philia. And the final time, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me, Philia? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you, Philia. And I think it's really interesting to look at this passage because to me, it's almost as if Peter was saying, Lord, you're asking me for a love that I'm not capable of, a love that is not humanly possible. And indeed, only after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, when literally the loving presence of God consumed them, that Peter was truly able to love Jesus with this agape love, and it utterly transformed him. And indeed, Paul, who wrote this letter to the Ephesians, when he had his dramatic counter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he too became filled with this divine love, a love that captivated his entire being and enabled him to endure more suffering and hardship than most of us could even imagine. Now, commentators have argued about the translation of the word undying in the passage that we heard and raised the question of, is it even humanly possible to love God with an undying, unending, pure, incorruptible love because only God's love is perfect. Only God's love is truly unconditional. Only God's love is completely pure and self-sacrificing as displayed in the life and death of Jesus and all the songs we've been singing about this morning. But it is clear either way that through the repeated use of the word agape, Paul believes it is possible for us not only to experience the agape love of God for us, but to also become imitators of it. And he's calling people to become so much like Christ that the evidence of that transformation is displayed in the kind of love that we see in Jesus. Paul is talking about a kind of love for God and each other that is the highest expression of love, a love that is pure and selfless, a love that is costly. But the truth is, of course, we can't give away what we don't have. We can't begin to love God and others with this agape love unless we've tasted it, unless we've been transformed by it, unless it becomes the fuel that motivates our lives. We read in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Our ability to love in the way that Paul is calling the church to love is only possible when we are filled with the love of God through his indwelling presence. This is the love that has eternally existed in the Trinity. Earlier in this letter, Paul prays for the Ephesian church in the form of a beautiful prayer, and I wanna read it over us. It says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, agape, may have the power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What a prayer. Friends, you have permission to pray that over me anytime, any place. I will always receive it. Our ability to love God and others will be in direct correlation to our experience of the indwelling love of God. Paul says this love surpasses knowledge. A.W. Tozer said that trying to describe God's love is like trying to hold the ocean in your arms. 
But let's dig a little more into what this love of God is actually like and try to put some more language onto the kind of love that Paul is calling us to demonstrate. Here's how the Old Testament writers repeatedly describe the love of God. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, the Hebrew word for love here is hesed. Now, I'm probably doing a terrible job of pronouncing this. This is where I need shimmy. Um, the Bible Project is also a really helpful resource for learning more about these ancient words. But this word hesed describes a loyalty, a faithfulness, an enduring commitment that is motivated by a deep sense of love and care. It speaks of a longing for the flourishing of one another. And throughout the Old Testament narrative, we read of God's hesed towards undeserving individuals and also his acts of hesed towards the entire nation of Israel. So when Moses asked God to forgive the people of Israel for their rebellion against him, he appealed to God's hesed. He, he doesn't try to argue that the people are somehow deserving of it. He appeals to God's character. His generous love and loyalty is simply in his nature. He can't help it. It is who God is. His hesed is eternally enduring. It is literally undying love, which does not actually depend upon our undying love, but on his faithfulness to his promises. He loves us with a love that is good and faithful and enduring always. Elsewhere in scripture, God's love is described as being a jealous love. And, and you know, we often associate jealousy in negative terms, right? But when scripture describes God as kana, its fundamental meaning relates to a marriage covenant. And God is like the husband who longs for intimacy with his wife and longs for her to enjoy intimacy with him alone. In the book of Song of Solomon, we read so many words that, that represent God as lover and us, the beloved. We read words like this, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy, unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love, rivers cannot sweep it away. Paul reiterates this sentiment in Romans 8 when he says, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And God continually calls for his people to love him like this in return, to love him with all of their heart, their mind, their strength, to be steadfast and loyal in their pursuit of him, to stand firm in their love for him. And yet, as the prophet Hosea said of the people, your love, your hesed, is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Now, I just wanna pause for a second, take a little detour back to the church at Ephesus because you may or may not know that there is actually another letter in the New Testament addressed to the church at Ephesus, and it's found in Revelation 2. Now, the book of Revelation is the last book of the New Testament. It's known as apocalyptic writing. If you're new to scripture, I definitely don't recommend starting there. Um, it's written by the apostle John following a vision of heaven. And in this book, he records what he saw in that vision. And so when you read it, you encounter a lot of imagery and symbolism that can be you know, challenging for all of us. 
but it was written also as a letter to the Christian churches in seven of the important cities. And of course, Ephesus was one of those seven important cities. And I think it's important for us in light of this conversation to read what some of this letter says. So here we go. Through John, God is saying, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So let's just stop there for a second. At the end of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul implored the church at Ephesus to stand firm in the armor of God, to persevere, to endure. And guess what? They did. They stood firm, they did not grow weary. But let's read on, because there's something really important for us here. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. So Paul, at the end of his letter, spoke a blessing over those who would love Jesus with an undying love and embody that agape love to others but in all of their hard work and their enduring and their persevering, they'd forgotten to love. They'd lost their first love, the love that had captivated their hearts when they first believed and was so easily poured out in acts of love towards one another had gradually slipped away. And now God calls them to repent. Friends, we have been both societally and as a church enduring a long season of hardship We are fatigued, we are depleted. And frankly, our biggest risk as a church is not that we will fail to work hard and endure the season. It's that we'll do that and at the end of it all find that our love has run dry. When it comes to standing firm, the objective is not to grit your teeth until it's all over. Human effort and willpower alone will not get us through this. That's not the kind of standing firm we're called to. We're called to stand firm in love. And that is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit filling us afresh and not only reminding us of the love that God has for us and recalibrating our loves around his, but also enabling us to embody the love of God towards each other. No one embodies the agape chesed love of God like Jesus. Scripture says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He faithfully, with generous and loyal love, was steadfast on his pilgrimage towards his crucifixion. And even in the midst of his death, he continued to embody this spirit-filled, steadfast love towards God and towards others, towards those who killed him, towards those who loved him and abandoned him. In fact, in John 13, right before his death, when he's celebrating his final meal with his disciples, um, knowing that his hour had come, knowing that he'd be denied and betrayed by these very friends, we read, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And as his disciples, we are called to love as he loved through hardship to the end. In the Gospels, when Jesus repeatedly talks about loving one another, he tells his disciples that it is their love for one another that will show the world that they belong to him. And here, Jesus is not even specifically talking about their love for the world in general or even their love for their enemies. He's saying the love that you embody for each other 
will be a testimony of me to the world. The extent to which we love one another is really the litmus test of true discipleship. So let me ask us today, what is the nature of our love today? And in this context of Paul's words to the Ephesians and Jesus' words to the disciples, I'm not really asking us to think about our love for the world in general or our love for our enemies. I'm really asking, what is the nature of your love towards the church, towards God's people? I've shared this before, but when Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, was giving a homily at a wedding, and I know Carlos is giving a homily at a wedding yesterday, congratulations, Alison and Renette, you're not watching this, but anyway, I'm, I'm saying that anyway. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer turned to the young couple and he said this, today you are young and very much in love, and you think that your love can sustain your marriage. It can't. Let your marriage sustain your love. Our life with God and with the church is a long-term relationship. And like any long-term relationship, there will be ups and downs. As humans, our loves, you know, it wax and wane like the moon. Seasons of closeness and intimacy will come and go. There will be seasons of high energy when we feel fully invested and love feels easy. And there will be times when it doesn't. And so the most important thing for us, as I've said again and again, is living in desperate dependency on the Holy Spirit, daily inviting the Holy Spirit to fill us afresh with divine love, to ask for the grace to be able to incarnate the commitment we've made to God and to others. A lot of what's involved in standing firm in a marriage covenant is choosing to love again and again and again, even in the midst of hardship and change. I asked my husband John the other evening, you know, how do we keep love alive in the midst of hardship? Doing some sermon research, guys. And he said, well, isn't that the very definition of love? Six years ago, um, I always get emotional when I talk about this, just pardon me. Six years ago, uh, when I went through a significant period of grief and loss, um, it led to a complete deconstruction of my faith, everything that I'd known up until that point. And in that uh, dark night of the soul, as it's sometimes described, I wondered if I would ever walk with Jesus and love his presence like I had once done. And for a prolonged period of time, I was not the woman my husband had married. Um, I was a shadow of myself, um, unable to laugh, unable to enjoy the simple things. I was sad and withdrawn. I felt angry. I was resistant to intimacy. And I am quite sure that my husband asked the question, what if I never get her back? What if this change is, is permanent? What if this is the way our lives together are always going to be? And you know what? Similarly, friends, there are times when the church journeys through significant seasons of change and trauma through no real fault of anyone's. And as a result, the church we see today may look radically different from the church that we knew and fell in love with. What do we do? How do we navigate those moments when we find ourselves wondering if the church we knew and loved, the church we said yes to, will ever be the same again? Will it be better? Will it be worse? Will I still feel the same way? How do we have a loyal, steadfast love through change? 
And I talked earlier about how um, the Old Testament repeatedly described God with this word hesed, this loyal, enduring, generous love, but it's actually sometimes used in a positive way in relation to ordinary people. And I wanna tell you one of those stories just to illustrate what I mean. There's a book in the Bible called Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabite woman who was married to an Israelite man called Malon, whose family had temporarily moved to Moab as a result of famine. And her mother-in-law is Naomi. Now, tragically, Ruth loses her husband. In fact, Naomi, her mother-in-law, loses her husband and both of her sons, leaving her only with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Now, Naomi decides to go back to Judah, where she's from, and she urges her two daughter-in-laws to go back and, and, and be with their own families and remarry. But Ruth insists on staying with Naomi, even though this relationship will not be fruitful to her in any way. And she says these famous words, Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. She makes a commitment to care for her widowed mother-in-law, a commitment that means she will live as a foreigner amongst a foreign people. But as those people see the way that Ruth cares for Naomi, they call it an act of hesed. Ruth's loyal love was not dependent upon circumstances. It was not dependent on her getting anything out of the equation. Ruth's love was simply a demonstration of her character of who she was at her core, and change and challenge often reveals that to us the most. Our character is who we are at our core, who we are in our unguarded moments, who we are in the midst of hardship and confusion. So what has this season of hardship revealed to you about yourself? How has it shaped you? Is my love for God and others maturing or like the Ephesians, is it beginning to fade? For the church at Ephesus, I've wondered what had faded first. Was it their love for each other, or was it their love for God? Arguably, a cooling of our love towards God inevitably results in an eventual decline of the quality of our love towards others. And a cooling of our love for others demonstrates a decrease in our intimacy with God, because Jesus said love for others is a distinctive badge of discipleship. And evidently through the letter in Revelation, we can see that the quality of a community's love is of utmost importance to God. A church where love ceases can no longer be a true expression of God's heart for the world. And I've been wondering if in this difficult season of change and trauma and uncertainty, if God is inviting us to fall in love with his church again, to remember that the church is not a building where we may or may not occasionally go, but the church is the body of Christ, his glorious bride. Eugene Peterson said, if we don't grasp church as Christ's body, we will always be dissatisfied, impatient, angry, dismayed, or disgusted with what we see. And so to close, I wanna give us some really practical things that I believe God is inviting us to do in this season. And the first is what Paul urges the church in Ephesus to do, and that is to pray. Pray in the spirit on all occasions, be alert, always keep praying for all of the Lord's people. When we pray, we are aligning ourselves with the heart of God. And when we find ourselves feeling out of love with a person or with God or with the church in general, being with Jesus in prayer is the first place we should find ourselves because it creates space for us to catch a glimpse of God's heart and our loves can become reordered around his loves. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I mentioned earlier, ministered during a time of Nazi occupation in Germany, and most of the Christian church was failing miserably under this regime. But despite that, in his book about community, it's called Life Together, he wrote this. If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty, if on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches that are there for us all in Jesus Christ. So pray. Let's pray daily for this church. Let's pray daily for the global church. Pray for your leaders, for our elders, and allow the Holy Spirit to fill your imagination with what he wants to do and say in our midst. This week, why not commit to praying for, for someone or a group of people from this community by name? Cry out for the rule and reign of God in their lives. Cry out for the Holy Spirit to enable them to stand firm in love. And in doing so, you will be rooting and establishing yourself in love. The second thing Paul says is to be alert. This is a really important season for us to be particularly attentive to our own souls and our interior life. Asking ourselves, how is my awareness and experience of God's love today? And how am I embodying that, particularly towards other believers? Because we need to be family in here before we can do mission out there. And I wanna say particularly to those who may be in the room or may be watching here currently feeling on the fence as to whether or not to call this church your home, I would just simply encourage you, be alert. Be alert to the motivations in your heart and make whatever decision you need to make in full and honest conversation with Jesus and with people who love you and are for you. Because truthfully, if leaving this church and going elsewhere will enable you to grow and thrive in your relationship with God and allow him to pour you out in love for others, I personally would fully bless and support that. Your loyal love is first and foremost to Jesus, not to Oaks Church Brooklyn, not to any church, in fact. But if your honest motivation is based on boredom or fear or itchy feet or a desire to find a leader to follow that matches your preferences, I would urge you to pause and to sit before God for long enough that you can unearth all of that in conversation with Jesus. And a very practical good question to ask is am I in a season of spiritual consolation where I'm feeling close and connected to Jesus in my daily life? Or am I in a season of spiritual desolation where I feel disconnected and distant from God and his leading in my life? St. Ignatius of Loyola would urge us not to make any significant change in our circumstances during a season of spiritual desolation. In other words, if I've been in a season of great closeness to God and I felt a strong sense of his guiding me towards a particular commitment, I should not make a change to that commitment when I find myself feeling disconnected. This advice has proved golden in my own life. And I would say, you know, it's perfectly normal to question our commitment to people or places when circumstances change. It's really human to want to find a relationship or a church that feels like the right fit for us. But I do think in our current culture, we need to be particularly careful not to treat the church like just something else we curate and consume. 
C.S. Lewis wrote this incredible book called The Screwtape Letters, and given the context of this series on spiritual realities and the battle we're in, it felt fitting to mention it. It is fictional and satirical, but it does seek to illustrate deep theological issues by describing human circumstances from the point of view of the enemy. And it's done through these letters between um, Screwtape, representing the devil, and Wormwood, one of his assistants. And when we read it, there's lots of different references to different sort of life situations. Um, But there's one in particular that really uh, struck me um, when they're talking about the church. And this is what it says. This is the devil, or Screwtape, giving advice to Wormwood, who is tempting a human. Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for a church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy, i.e. God, wants him to be a pupil. Every church will at some point disappoint us. There is no perfect church because there are no perfect people. And if you're new to this church, At some point, you're going to be hurt or disappointed. But God, in his infinite wisdom, raised up the church to partner with him in bringing his kingdom to earth. And at some point, everyone who finds themselves on the fence will need to make a choice to either love the church they're in or to follow the leading of God to the church where he is inviting them to love. But loving the church will always be part of the invitation. And... Okay, this might be something of a tangent, but when it comes to any relationship that we decide to leave, and you know, if this feels like it's not applicable to you, just park it somewhere. But in any relationship that we decide to leave, we don't ghost people, right? And you know, the same goes for the church. If you ever get to the point where you decide to leave this church or in the future you decide to leave another church, just do me a favor and leave well. Honor the history that you've had drop the leader a note, give them a call, go for a walk or a coffee. Obviously, how you end any relationship is usually connected to the history you've had. And I know in this season of COVID where there's lots of us who haven't spent very much time in this building. Maybe even some people here watching haven't been in this building in a year and a half, and it would just be so easy to think, I haven't been around. I'm just going to slip away and go unnoticed. But the church isn't a building. The church is a body, and at some point you joined yourself to this body, and so if you decide to leave, please just don't disappear. Leave well. Thank you for indulging my tangent. Uh, The final thing I wanna reiterate from Paul's last words to the Ephesians is that when it comes to the difficult task of standing firm, the most important thing is to be rooted and established in the love of God. And by that, I don't just mean an intellectual kind of knowing of God. I mean an experiential knowing in your gut, a knowing and a loving of God that fills your entire being and gets expressed in uncomplicated obedience. We are invited to know his love, to be intimately acquainted with it, to be swept up in it, to curl up in it, to be reawakened by it, sustained by it, and ultimately to embody it. Some of us are really battle-weary, we wish we could be standing firm, but we're just like, peace out, guys, I'm, I'm done. I don't have it in me to do this anymore. Some of us are nursing pretty significant battle wounds, some that have been inflicted on you by others. Some of you may be feeling like one big casualty of the enemy's attacks. Some of you may be wrestling in shame with the fact that you have gaping, festering sores that you've inflicted on yourself 
through poor, poor choices and sin in your life. Who among us today is not desperately in need of this love? Remember those words from Paul in that prayer earlier I read. It said that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I think sometimes we forget that this is still the invitation for us to not just have a memory of that feeling, but for it to be our present day lived reality. And so what does the overflow of this love look like? What would it look like this week for us to invest in our love relationship with Jesus, to soak in his presence, to be filled with his divine love? And what would it look like to embody that love? What practical expressions of love might God prompt you to make this week towards a fellow brother or sister in Christ? Because let's not forget that your love for me helps me stand firm in my battle, and my love for you helps you to stand firm in yours. Our love for each other is absolutely vital in our ability to withstand the battles that we face each day. So let's in practical ways honor and dignify the image and activity of God in one another. We've spent the last eight weeks unpacking the various items in the armor of God, and we want to be people who make use of all of these heavenly resources to stand firm against the enemy. We want to stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around our waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place, with our, our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We want to take up the shield of faith, put on the helmet of salvation, and take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But we also, friends, don't wanna ever forget that the most important thing we are called to clothe ourselves in is love. And I wanna close this morning by reading more words from Paul, this time from the book of Colossians. Why don't you even just close your eyes, put out your hands, I just wanna speak these words. Let them wash over you. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgive you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me. I was gonna say maybe the band could come up. You already did it. Thank you. We're just gonna wait on the Holy Spirit for a little bit. If you feel comfortable, I would just encourage you to stretch out your hands in a posture of receiving. This is time for you to connect with God and what God specifically wants to say and do in your life this morning. So closing our eyes just helps us to forget about what is going around us and what God might be saying to this person on that side of us or this person on this side. But just to connect, what is, what is God speaking to me specifically? And what does God wanna do in my heart and life this morning? So come Holy Spirit.
Come, Holy Spirit, we invite your presence. Come and speak to us. there may be all sorts of different ways that God is inviting us to respond today and you alone know where you felt your heart quicken or your ears become attentive you know what made you feel prickly or, or where emotion welled up behind your eyes so just take a moment and name that before God just tell him what came up for you and just invite him to come and speak to you about how he is inviting you personally to respond on the prayer ministry team, can I invite you to come on up so that you can just be ready to receive anyone who might want prayer today? I think for some of you, you feel really disconnected and you just desperately want to experience the love of God again and feel a fresh infilling of his spirit today. We would love to pray that you might taste again of the height and depth and width and length of the love of God, that the love that surpasses knowledge would fill you afresh and strengthen you in your inner being. We sang earlier, the resurrected king is resurrecting me. Maybe that didn't feel like your experience. Please, if that is the longing of your heart today, please just come. Our prayer team would love to minister to you and pray that that would be true in your life, that you would feel the spirit of God, the love of God resurrecting you. I also think some may have felt a sense of conviction that their love for God or for the church has grown cold and perhaps like the church in Ephesus were called to do in the book of Revelation, God may leading, be leading you to repent. For me, um, kneeling on these rugs uh, has often been a place of confession and repentance, a place of forgiveness and healing. And it's also often been a place of gratitude where I just come just overwhelmed by God's loyal love towards me. So these prayer rugs are open. Feel free to use them however you want to respond. And for anyone who just has a particular need where you just feel like, I just love someone to stand with me and pray. Just please come. We're gonna use this time to, to worship and to respond in a little bit. Carlos is gonna come and lead us in confession and communion. But I would just encourage you, um, if you already know that God has been kind of giving you a nudge in some way, you don't need to figure out all the details of that. I would just encourage you to come. Be obedient with your body, in your body what God is kind of doing in your spirit and come and use this opportunity to be ministered to at the front. So let's worship and respond. Thanks, Jesus.